Go and catch a falling star. Get with child and mandrake root. Tell me where all past years are, or who cleft the devil's foot. Teach me to hear mermaids singing, or to keep off envy stinging, and find what wind serves to advance an honest mind. If thou beest born to strange sights, things invisible to see, ride ten thousand days and nights till age snow-white hairs on thee. Thou, when thou returnst, wilt tell me all strange wonders that befell thee, and swear nowhere lives a woman true and fair. If thou findest one, let me know, such a pilgrimage were sweet. Yet do not, I would not go, though at next door we might meet. Though she were true when you met her, and last till you wrote your letter, yet she will be false ere I come to two or three. Welcome to Femmacabre, a podcast about life's mysteries, oddities, and of course, the macabre, hosted by Stephanie Malosh and Aaron Vance. episode, Aaron and I delve into the interesting and dark history of physic gardens and some of the dangerous plants you might come across. Before we begin, though, it is important to note that neither Aaron nor I are experts, and so the effects and purposes of the plants discussed during this episode are for entertainment only, and we do not recommend the consumption of any plant unless it has been identified and is known to be harmless. The poem at the start of this episode was John Donne's song. You've likely not heard the term physic garden, though you may have heard of a poison garden, most likely due to the notorious poison garden at Alnwick Castle in England, said to be home to 100 killers. Steph and I visited a similar poison garden at Blarney Castle in Ireland earlier this year. Though it appears foreboding with its iron cages and skull and crossbone warnings alongside nearly every plant, a sign at the beginning of the garden states that the poison garden at Blarney Castle was modeled after a Victorian physic garden. Now, a physic garden is a garden designed for the cultivation of medicinal plants and herbs as well as fantastica. Fantastica is a term coined by Dr. Lewis Lewin to describe substances which, upon ingestion, alter the state of the brain. On John Robertson's comprehensive website, thepoisongarden.co.uk, he states that poison gardens and poisonous plants are not quite the terrors that we make them out to be, and that, in fact, every garden is a poison garden. Robertson was a consultant and guide for the Alnwick Poison Garden for many years, and he is a fierce advocate for educating people about these fascinating plants and our relationships with them. His assertion is correct, and very much in line with the original physic garden. Many common garden plants have poisonous properties. Daffodils, ivy, snowdrops, and even rhubarb are just some of the plants containing poison that are in my front yard right now. Just because a plant is poisonous does not necessarily mean its only property is poison, or that it is used exclusively to poison 
poison people. Many poisonous plants have compounds that can be extracted and cultivated for pharmaceutical use, and if you come across a poisonous plant, many of them have very unpleasant odors or tastes that decrease the risk of accidental ingestion. Very few people die from ingesting poisonous plants every year, but they of course remain fascinating. We're all intrigued by the beautiful flower that can kill. The knowledge that birthboard can cause complete kidney failure and a plant as beautiful as angel's trumpet can cause terrifying hallucinations and death is the kind of thing that us morbid humans live to read about. The idea that many of these plants are perfectly legal to grow in a home garden is as intoxicating as the fly agaric or Amanita muscaria mushroom. Physic gardens have existed for centuries, but the term poison garden seems to have gained popularity in recent times. The conflation of the two is likely because many plants with poisonous properties were simultaneously thought to have healing properties, and many are in fact still used in modern medicine. Physic gardens were typically kept alongside hospitals, apothecaries, and large estates across Europe, and in later years, North America. Physic gardens gained popularity in the Middle Ages as herbals were written and published and as more and more medical schools began to open. Some early physic gardens existed in Venice in 1334, Pisa in 1544, and Paris in 1570. In a moment, Steph is going to tell us about one of the first and oldest physic gardens in Britain. But first, I want to briefly touch on early herbals, which were books containing illustrations and descriptions of plants and their medicinal, toxic, or culinary properties. One of the most well-known and often consulted herbals is English botanist, herbalist, and physician Nicholas Culpepper's The Complete Herbal, published in 1653. If you're interested, it is available on Project Gutenberg for free and offers a wealth of knowledge about plants and herbs used in medicine. It's really easy to get lost within its pages, reading about the lore and legends associated with various plants and the often magical properties attributed to them. It is important to recognize that, while modern scientific advances and medical practices are incredibly sophisticated and effective, early herbal medicine or folk medicine was also sophisticated and widely relied upon. For example, foxglove contains a highly dangerous poison with the power to stop the heart. However, in the 18th century, it was used as a diuretic to aid in the curing of dropsy. Today, Digitalis lantana, a particular species of foxglove, is cultivated and digoxin and lanodicide C are extracted for the treatment of congestive heart failure. Though it was the diuretic properties that treated dropsy, early physicians and apothecaries were on the right track. Poison hemlock, which continues to occasionally kill people who accidentally ingest it today, was used in a soporific sponge as a surgical anesthesia in accounts dating back to the 12th century. Black henbane was also used as an anesthetic as part of a soporific sponge. Black henbane is so poisonous that simply smelling it can cause mild intoxication. Though poison hemlock and black henbane are extremely dangerous, they did allow a patient to receive surgery and recover with less pain. I know I'd certainly be taking that soporific sponge over a gulp of whiskey and watching someone saw through my leg any day. In addition to plants with poisonous properties, physic gardens also contain more common plants used in herbal medicine, like lavender for restlessness, mint for nausea, lemon balm for anxiety, chamomile as a sleep aid, and garlic as an anti septic. As Steph stated at the beginning of this episode, we are not doctors or experts of any kind, so please do not attempt to cultivate or ingest any plant or herbal remedy without consulting your family physician or a professional gardener. With that little disclaimer out of the way, Steph will now tell us more about one of the oldest physic gardens in Britain, the Oxford Botanic Garden. Well, 
we know as the Oxford Botanic Garden today is actually the first botanic garden in the UK, as well as one of the first ever scientific gardens in the world. Being so renowned and steeped in history, I felt that the Oxford Botanic Gardens must have some mysterious path. What I found during my research, however, wasn't necessarily mysterious. Instead, I learned about a slightly strange yet interesting man named Jacob Bobart. Jacob Bobart the Elder was a German botanist born in 1599 who later immigrated to England and became the first Horty Prefectus, which is just a very fancy way of saying he was the head gardener or director or keeper at the Oxford Physic Garden, as it was called in 1641. The garden itself was founded 10 years prior, but was taken care of by professors of botany from the university up until this point. Although Bobart is known as the first keeper of the garden, he actually wasn't originally destined to be. He was chosen by Henry Danvers, the Earl of Danby, to fill the position after their first choice for keeper of the garden. John Tradescant died within a year of his appointment. Thus, Jacob Bobart the Elder would be known as the first City of Oxen Gardener, which was the official title given to him by Danvers, along with the 99-year lease on the grounds. Jacob Bobart's appointment alone was enough to cause a stir within the community, as he was known to be an eccentric German veteran who replaced the respectable Tradescant, who had also been the royal gardener for King Charles I. Town gossip and stories from the time can give us a clearer picture of Bobart's eccentricities. Thomas Baskerville, an antiquarian from the late 17th century, described him as being a man who, in his later days, delighted in wearing a long beard that he would then decorate with little pieces of silver on special occasions and holidays, which entertained the townsfolk and maybe ingenious thinking on his part, drew in large crowds to visit the gardens. He was also foolishly known to have a pet goat, which seemed to disturb many of the townspeople, who thought a dog would be better suited as a gardener's companion, considering goats have quite the uninhibited appetite. But forget about those haters. Bobart turned out to be a very accomplished gardener, and spearheaded many changes that allowed the Oxford Physic Gardens to thrive and continue on throughout all these centuries. When Danvers died in 1644, Bobart saw this as an opportunity to take full advantage of this situation. Since Bobart didn't earn a salary as head gardener, and the money that did come in for the upkeep of the garden was so little, he decided to then sell any goods he harvested from the gardens. And by 1648, he had also managed to successfully publish the first catalogue, or herbarium, of the over 1,400 plants growing in the gardens during that time. This helped Bobart establish himself as a great botanist. Fun fact, the original catalogue was actually gifted to the Oxford Botanic Garden in 1993 by Henry Schalick, who was the then director of the famed and historic Blackwell's Bookshop. Schalick actually felt it necessary for such an important piece of botanical history to be seen by the people rather than locked behind the doors at the Bodleian Library. Bobart's catalogue itself is also very interesting. Most botanical lists will only contain the Latin names of plants, however, Bobart had arranged the catalogue into two parts. The first was an alphabetical list of the Latin names with their common names, and the second was reversed, so with its common names in alphabetical order followed by their Latin name. Timothy Walker, Horta Perfectus of the Oxford Botanic Gardens from 1988 to 2014, had described the inclusion of the Oxfordshire names of the plants Bobart had recorded to have been very useful considering the Latin names of the plants had changed over the centuries, while their vernacular versions had remained similar if not the same. This was also before Carolus Linnaeus, who I actually just recently taught my pupils about 
wrote in science class, invented the concept of biological classification in 1758, which helped pave the way for modern taxonomy with the two-part naming system used to classify living things. So, for example, Homo sapiens. Overall, Bobart's dedication and hard work as the first keeper of the garden paid off. An oil portrait of him in his later years showed him wearing a grand outfit of a fur-trimmed jacket with gold embroidery. And when he died in 1680, he had been able to leave a great inheritance of money, land, houses, as well as an inn to his wife, sons, and daughters, and his son Jacob Bobart the Younger. I'm really loving these names, by the way. They sound so much better than Jacob Bobart Sr. and Jacob Bobart Jr. Anyway, Jacob Bobart the Younger was appointed as the next keeper of the Physic Garden, and Bobart the Elder's legacy lives on today in the garden itself, as the majority of the plants he catalogued are still grown in the gardens today, and in fact, one plant originating from his time as keeper continues to grow today. It's one of the two yew trees in the south end of the walled garden area. I actually had a chance to visit Oxford Gardens last summer when I first moved here, but had I known of Jacob Bobart and his influence on the garden when I had visited, I think it would have made the visit even more special. Visiting gardens and parks is one of my favorite things to do while traveling. I've always felt such an immense sense of peace and belonging in nature, so taking some time to myself and having a stroll through a botanical garden is one of my ways to ensure I do a little bit of self-care while traveling. I've always been interested in learning more about the plants we use or have used throughout history, not only for consumption, but for medicinal or other purposes. One such plant is the mandrake, a plant that Aaron and I are both equally passionate about. When Steph and I were at the Blarney Castle Poison Garden, I felt like a kid in a candy shop, even though it was New Year's Day and nothing was in bloom. Seeing mandrake roots with their eerie human shape protruding from the frosty ground was an absolute dream come true. I am a mandrake fangirl. I love reading about mandrakes and I've written a couple short stories about them. I even have a mandrake tattoo, which I'll post on the social media with links to the artist page because she did an incredible job. Now, most of us have heard of mandrakes because of Madame Pomfrey's herbology class at Hogwarts. Perhaps one of my favorite parts of the mandrake lore in the Harry Potter universe is that small children are expected to replant them with nothing but fuzzy, enchanted earmuffs to protect them. And you know what? J.K. Rowling wasn't too far off from popular lore surrounding mandrake. Some stories tell of sending a dog to dig up the mandrake so that the human wouldn't be able to hear its piercing screams, which were said to have had the ability to kill anyone who hears them. Unfortunately, this would cause the dog to perish instead of its owner. Because of the mandrake root's resemblance to the human form, it was used as a token of fertility and a root could either be male or female, often indicating whether the future child would be male or female. A mandrake was at its most potent when it grew beneath a gallows, where the blood and semen of a hanged man would mix with the earth and produce the magical root. The mandrake root was also carried as a good luck charm, a fact that negatively impacted perception of Joan of Arc at her trial in 1431 when she was accused of carrying one with her. Mandrake roots were so popular as good luck charms and fertility enhancers that counterfeits began to pop up all over Europe. Charlatans carved human-like figures out of bryony and other similar roots and added grass to appear like pubic hair. One of the most fascinating aspects of mandrake lore is the care and veneration of the mandrake root as an Erdman, or Earthman, in 17th century Germany. The Erdman was purchased or otherwise acquired, left untouched for a number of days, and then bathed in warm water. This left the water bestowed with magical properties, and it could then be sprinkled over livestock and around the home for luck and protection. The Erdman was then wrapped in silk and put in a special box amongst the most important possessions in the home, where it remained all year aside from its quarterly bathings. 
some versions of this tradition say that it was best to bathe the mandrake in milk or wine, and that it must be done on a strict schedule or else the mandrake would bring wrath upon its keepers. You may be wondering how this plant ended up in physic gardens and poison gardens around the world. The mandrake is a hallucinogenic, emetic, narcotic, and purgative plant. In fact, some scholars speculate that in Shakespeare's most well-known play, Juliet Capulet takes a draught of mandrake to slip into a death-like sleep. Mandrake is perhaps the most written about plant in history, so stories about this fascinating root are boundless. I came across a story while researching mandrakes for this episode that really caught my attention. I found a 37-page essay, and somehow managed to find the time to read it too, by James Rendell Harris, named The Origin of the Cult of Aphrodite. It was a very interesting read, but it was also very long, so I'll do my best to condense his findings and theories into just a few minutes. Harris first begins by explaining that many of the deities in the Greek pantheon are associated with varying flora and fauna, and so for example, we have the cult of Dionysus, which is associated with the ivy and the oak, and the cult of Apollo with the mistletoe and the apple tree. But despite these connections, he says that the cult of Aphrodite has no obvious personification in nature or ties to the Greek pantheon apart from her parents being Zeus and Dione. The closest, he says, we get is the seafoam from which she's birthed. Instead, he suggests that if she were to have a botanical personification like the others, it would be a link to a plant tied to sexuality and fertility, which, duh, makes sense considering she's the goddess of love. But when discussing this possibility, he says that if we were to ask an ancient Greek herbalist which plant is likely to operate most powerfully on the affections, I say that in air quotes, he says they would reply without hesitation that this plant would be the mandrake, the fruit of which is described as kind of looking like a yellow apple and has a sweet scent. And that fruit is actually found interspersed throughout history and literature, and even among the stories found in Genesis. And Harris's research also led him to find evidence suggesting that even without ingesting it, if a woman were to carry a mandrake plant near her waist, held in her girdle, or otherwise, it would promote great fertility. Although this was just a brief part of his essay, I thought this section to be quite interesting. Harris looks into a variety of interesting statements made in ancient Greek texts, describing Aphrodite as bisexual or non-binary, and even found some witness statements explaining that people have seen Aphrodite walking around dressed as both male and female, which he links to the visual of the mandrake coming in both male and female forms. He also quotes Dioscorides, whose name I think I'm saying right, but I'm not entirely sure considering I keep wanting to call him Discorides, um, which is a name I just totally made up, but if he really did exist, I'd say goddess of Disco and Abba. I mean, we're in ancient Greece, so why not? Anyway, Dioscorides was one of the first ever to describe the mandrake's magical and physical properties, and especially as defining it as coming in both male and female form. And so ultimately, Harris ties all of this mandrake lore to Aphrodite, but he also mentions that artists' depictions of Aphrodite often show her holding an apple in her hand, which he explains could very well just be the fruit of the mandrake plant, especially considering what I mentioned earlier about that fruit very closely resembling an apple. But he also says that artists have often depicted her as having a mandrake root entwined within her girdle, which ties back to the love magic of tying mandrake around your waist for fertility. His exploration of this forgotten lore and love magic further propels his argument for the cult of Aphrodite being tied to the mandragora officinarum. 
The mandrake's magical properties of working as a sexual aid and for promoting fertility is really the most likely personification for the goddess of love. So remember, folks, if you're looking for a little luck in love or fertility, remember you don't need to eat a mandrake and die. You could instead just wedge the plant into your belt. We'd like to thank all the listeners we have so far. It's been really exciting this past week taking a look at our statistics online and seeing our number of listeners and subscribers grow every day. We really hope you like us enough to keep listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Femmacabre. We'd love to hear what you guys think, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Make sure to tune in next week when we celebrate my 27th birthday with some special rock and roll lore.